So the Torah commands us to take four items, the lulav, the esrog, hadas, and arava, and hold them together on Sukkot. The Torah uses different names for them. Regardless, we only know what they are, like any item that you identify, based on our oral tradition. In other words, we've been using the same thing for thousands of years. It's very hard to go back now to something that was written thousands of years ago, and it uses a name for something. It's very hard to know what it was referring to without some sort of tradition that tells us what it was. And so we have an oral tradition that tells us the identity of each of the items that the Torah tells us to take on Sukkot. The first item that the Torah tells us to take on Sukkot is a pre-Eitz Hadam, which pre means a fruit, Eitz of a tree. Hadar is usually translated as beautiful, a beautiful fruit of a tree. Our oral tradition tells us that that is referring to a fruit that I have right over here called a esrog, or in Sephardic pronunciation, a etrog. It is a beautiful fruit. The Talmud actually tells us that the word Hebrew word hadar, which is often translated as beautiful, can also translate as from the word lador, to live. A fruit that lives. What does that mean? It's a fruit that lives through all seasons of the year. Most fruit grow in the summer. And they grow and grow and grow until they get too heavy to be held by the stem. And then they fall down. The estrog is very unique. It has a very, very strong stem. So it will grow and grow and grow and grow. And if you don't pick it, it will continue growing. They actually tried, they've planted estrogum in various climates, similar Mediterranean climates. They, they, you could get, they, they've planted them here in California. They once tried planting them in the Southern Hemisphere in Australia. And I knew the fellow, he's since passed, who tried planting them. And then he waited, they grew in the summer over there, which is in December, January, and February. And so they grew, and then they left them on the tree through the winter. And by the end of the winter, the esrogs were like, were massive. They just kept growing. Eventually, they'll shrivel up. But they don't fall off the tree. So that's the hadar. They dwell around year on the tree. Yes? Um, do they taste kind of like a lemon? Or that's a good question. I have never actually tasted an esrog. I've had esrog jam and esrog liqueur, but I have not tasted a fresh esrog. I think they're a lot more bitter than a lemon. Um, there's not much. If you open it up, it's mostly the white skin. There's very little actually actual fruit inside. Um, it's best known for its smell. It has a great smell, and it's used in scent. Uh, but it is used, but you can make jam out of it, and you can make um, liquor. You can make liquor out of any fruit. You can make liquor out of etrog as well. They make vodka out of etrog, or etrog-flavored vodka as well. Um, so the Ramban, Rav Moshe ben Nachman, offers a different source. He points out that the word etrog is Aramaic. We started using the word etrog in Mishnaic times when most Jews spoke Aramaic. And there's an Aramaic word, arag, 
Etrog is from the Aramaic word arag. And arag means beautiful in Aramaic. So he suggests that etrog is simply a translation of the Hebrew word. The term that we use etrog is a translation from the Hebrew word hadar, beautiful. It's simply an Aramaic translation of the word. And he believes that the tree, the etrog tree, what we call today an etrog, was an original in biblical Hebrew called a hadar tree. That's what it was called. It was called a beautiful tree after the beautiful fruit that was on it. It was called a hadar tree. That's what it was known as. Later, when Jews began to speak Aramaic as our spoken language during Second Temple period, it became known as the etrog tree based on the Aramaic translation of the word hadar. So the etrog is, everyone always notes that it is fairly similar to a lemon. However, it is different from the lemon in a number of ways. Firstly, it's a different shape of a lemon. The lemon is rounded. The etrogs tend to be tall and long. Right? So more of a, well, not even a pear shape, maybe even an upside-down pear shape a little. It doesn't go very, some of them do get very narrow at the bottom. Most of them. So also, the etrog is very bumpy on the outside. That's its beauty, right? It has very nice, it has bumps on the outside, while the lemon tends to be very smooth on the outside. Also, very no, notable, the etrog has a pitum at the top. Essentially, the fruit of the etrog itself becomes a stem made of the same material as the fruit and the same color as the fruit. There's a little stem over here at the top. And then on top of that stem, there's like a dried out flower. That once, when the etrog first started budding, that was the flower that it started budding with. And then that flower essentially dries out and stays on top of the etrog. Now, not all etrogs come off the tree. With Every etrog has a pitum when it grows. Some of them drop the pitum. They drop that top part, similar like many other fruit that drop the flower. Um, some of them drop the pitum while it's growing. Many of them keep the pitum on and they're still on after they're, they're picked. So um, not all etrogs actually have a pitum, come with a pitum, but they all had a pitum at some point, which is again a unique thing for the etrog. Now etrogs, where do etrogs grow? So they grow really in Mediterranean climates. And historically, they grew all around the Mediterranean. Now there's a number of different species, a number of different types of etrog. And the etrogs that are used are usually split into four different types of etrogs. There's the Italian and Greek etrogs that grew in the various Italian and Greek islands along the Mediterranean. There was the Israeli Syrian etrog that grew along the East Mediterranean in modern day Israel, Lebanon, Syria. There was the Moroccan etrog that grew in North Africa. And then there was the Yemenite etrog that grew in Yemen. And each one looks somewhat different from the next. Um, they're, they're similar. They all, they're all etrogs, but it's like you have different types of apples. Um, there are different types of etrogs. Now, originally, Jews presumably lived in the land of Israel, and then later in Babylon, Mesopotamia, and in those places, they grew their own etrogs. They had their own etrog orchards. They grew their own etrogs. But since the destruction of the Second Temple, 
and the movement of Jews from the farm, away from the farms in Mesopotamia, when we lived in Babylon and we were farmers, and Jews moved in general away from the farms, Jews generally no longer controlled the Etrog farms. In many places, in most Christian lands and many Muslim lands, Jews were not even able to own land, the farm. So they did not generally own the farms. So the farms were usually owned by non-Jews, and Etrogs are very, very hard fruit to grow, and they were grown almost exclusively for the Jewish use of on Sukkot. That's their main use. They're hard to grow. The main value um, for at least the last 2,000 years was for Jews to use the etrog on Sukkot. And so Jews would go to various orchards and various places and purchase the etrogs from the non-Jews. Now the problem is the etrog tree is very, very delicate. It is very hard to grow, the etrog tree. It needs to be protected. In most places, etrogs were grown under, etrog trees were grown under tents or um, or um, mesh, some sort of um, uh, some sort of covering to protect it from the elements, to protect it from the wind, to protect it from animals. Etrogs also are very susceptible to disease. Etrog trees, and so they're very very delicate trees and very very hard trees to grow. So. Some farmers came up with a genius idea. Etrog is very similar genetically to the lemon. And so what they did is they grafted lemons onto etrog trees, or more often grafted etrog branches onto lemon trees. And that way, they, since they're very similar, they grow really well. And that way it grows much better. It's less susceptible to disease and less susceptible to the elements. The problem is that as soon as you graft your etrog, your etrog isn't kosher anymore. So you got a problem. So these were non-Jewish farmers. They didn't care too much for the kosher of the etrog. So many over the years, many orchards became grafted. And the etrogs from those orchards aren't real etrogs. They're hybrids. They're not the real thing. And so Jews have these ways to tell, the experts know how to tell, whether the tree had been grafted. Um, after a couple generations, it becomes hard to tell whether its grandfather was grafted. And so, um, but they could tell the original tree is pretty easy to tell. And so um, they would have people going to the, to the orchards and checking each tree to make sure that it had not been played with, it had not been grafted with a lemon, and there were no problems with it. And so over the years, various orchards and various places were certified or they were very careful um, to ensure that they were not grafted. So today, when buying an etrog, we have to be careful that we don't buy etrogs that come from non-certified trees, those trees that we don't know historically were not grafted. Otherwise, it can be somewhat hard to tell whether they were grafted or not. I guess you could put it through genetic testing, but that would be difficult to do. So unless we have some sort of history to know whether it was grafted or not, um, we avoid it. Um, so today, um, most Italian and Greek etrog orchards over the years were grafted. And most, even those that perhaps weren't grafted, were not supervised consistently, and we really don't know. 
to the one place that we do still purchase just about all of the Italian or Greek etrogues today come from the island of Calabria. In Calabria, there are many orchards. It's one of the big industries in Calabria today. There are many etrog orchards um, where Jews, European Jews, have harvested etrogues from there for hundreds and hundreds of years and thousands of years probably from early days of European Jewry, and have really supervised those orchards to ensure that they're not grafted. And if they caught any farmer grafting an etrog, they made sure that those etrogs were not used, um, and they tracked those trees over the years. So we do have etrogs from... Um, the only real European etrogs that we still use today are from... Um, from, um, from Calabria in... It's an island in Italy. Now, there was some issue. There was some issue with the um, Israeli and Syrian etrogim over the years. We know that many trees were grafted. There were years that there was a small Jewish community in Israel, and it wasn't financially um, viable to bring etrogim from Israel to Europe. Since you could get them from Italy, why would you go all the way to Israel? Um, and so, while local Jews took esrogim, there were not a lot of esrogim that they knew were not grafted. And over the years, many of the etrog trees in Israel, Syria, were grafted. There were very few that weren't. And so today already, they've managed to replant those non-grafted etrogs from Israel um, to ensure that... Um, you know, today the ones that grow Jewish-grown orchards in Israel are all from the non-grafted type. But there were um, years earlier, especially in the early days of the state of Israel, and even before that, there were many earlier etrog farms owned by that had been owned by non-Jews um, that were not from that were not really kosher etrogs. Um, in general, the Yemenite and um, Moroccan etrogs are generally not grafted because they weren't as advanced in their farming techniques in those places um, and didn't bother to graft their esrogim, um, so it wasn't as much of a problem. Today, you can get um, all of those. You can get Italian etrogs, Moroccan etrogs, Yemenite etrogs, and Israeli etrogs. We here are selling the Italian and the Israeli ones. Um, that's the ones that we're getting, ones preferred in our community, but you can get the other ones um, here in the United States as well. They're all imported. Today, they have replanted the Calabrian etrogs and the Moroccan and Yemenite etrogs have all been replanted in Israel. And there are in Israel orchards with each type of etrog that are actually grown in Israel itself. What's the difference between them? How can you tell... I don't know all the details of the exact difference. The Yemenite etrog, and this is a this one here is an Israeli etrog. This is from Israel. Um, the Greek etrog is a little bit smoother. It's not as bumpy. Um, it's um, the Greek etrog. I think is not as long. Um, the Yemenite etrog is narrow. It almost looks like a pear. It goes up, narrow, very narrow at the top. Um, the Moroccan etrog is extremely bumpy, much more than this, much bigger bumps than this, and is also tall and narrow. 
So their shapes are somewhat they, different. They all have that smell, the same smell? Yeah, yeah they all so you, you could tell they're all etrogs. Um, I don't know if I'd be able to be able to tell each one just looking at it. But there are, you know, there's etro dealers that are professionals at it. Um, so um, etrogs are hard to grow, so they are expensive. And a lot of etrogs that are grown are not kosher to be used, and so explain why. And so um, it's... Um, and so, uh, therefore, etrogs are somewhat expensive. Right? They, um, they sell for a high price. Um, even a basic etrog, more expensive etrogs um, can be... Sorry? The basic etrog on its own... Um, it retails for $40, $50 without, I mean, without the rest of the stuff. So as at the most basic. So they're not a cheap fruit. Um, now, after Sukkot, you can get them for a dollar because nobody wants them anymore, right? Or even less, right? People give them away for free. But before Sukkot, when people want them, they, they, that's what they cost. Um, on the eve, if you go tomorrow in the hours before Sukkot, there's people, the etrog dealers that have ex extra etrogs that nobody wanted, they give them to teenagers who, for a couple dollars, and they stand on the street on Pico Boulevard um, with stands, and they're selling etrogs for $10, $15. But those are the leftovers that nobody wanted. Kosher? They're kosher, but just nobody wanted them, and they can't sell them. They, you know, they'll sell them. At this point, they'll sell them. By tomorrow afternoon, they'll be selling them for anything. So if you want, you can get a very cheap one on Pico Boulevard for... Um, Going for yeah, maybe maybe they sell them for fifteen dollars or something. Twenty dollars. Yes. I can speak for that liqueur. It's wonderful. Sorry. I can speak, you speak for, the for the liqueur. Thank you. But my husband was the one that surprised me. He said he found it in a specialty store. But we did look on the back, and it said I thought it said it was a product of Israel. It could be. And and it had the kosher. Bag. It could be. Kosher. Very possible. So would, would that be if it says it's kosher? Is it kosher? That says it's kosher. <laughs> so for an etrog to be kosher, for the etrog to be kosher, not kosher to eat, we're talking about kosher to be used, it has to be whole with no parts missing. There can't be any holes in it, any cuts in it. If there's any cuts or holes, it's not kosher. <coughs> Including in that is it cannot be missing the pitam. Now it depends. If it, was, it had no pitam, if the pitam fell off before it was cut, then it doesn't need a pitam, that's okay. In fact, most etrogs don't have a pitam. They fall off before they're cut. That's especially true of the um, Italian, and the Italian etrogs definitely fall off, almost all of them. The Israeli etrogs, a lot of them fall off. Um, I think the Moroccan, the Yemenites, less so. But if they fall off beforehand, then that's okay. But if they fell off afterwards, and then someone knocks off the pitam and it's very fragile, then the etrog is not kosher. So we kind of keep the etrog in very soft and care for it because if we lose that top piece, if it falls off, someone drops it and it falls off, then the etrog is no longer able to be eaten. Now our sages say that because the, the etrog is called in the Torah a beautiful fruit, one should get not just a regular etrog, one should try to get a beautiful etrog. What makes an etrog beautiful? So firstly, the shape. This one is shaped pretty straight, but if it is more... It can be, some etrogs can be more even, right, and shaped better. Um, and also that it doesn't have any marks on it. Etrogs tend to, the skin is very, very gentle. 
And if even a leaf touches it while it's growing, it will have a mark from the leaf. And so um, the marks are actually on the etrog actually called leaves. And so um, if it has black marks on it, it's still kosher, but it's not beautiful. So I should try to get a beautiful etrog. Um, you can get very beautiful etrogs that have beautiful shapes and no marks on them can sell for a couple hundred dollars. So it, it depends what's more valuable. Right? So that is our etro. So the Torah says we should take an etro. And then the Torah says there are three other things that we are supposed to take as well. The Torah says we shall also take kapot tmarim, which means a tight date branch. So dates grow on a palm tree. Palms, there are different types of palm, many, many different types of palm trees. Um, palm trees grow various fruits. Some palm trees have coconuts. And some palm trees grow dates. Particularly in the land of Israel, many palm trees grew dates. So the, um, the kapot marim, the, um, the tight dame palm, according to our tradition, is a palm branch, this one over here, that has all of its leaves all still tight together. All of its leaves are tight. We call it the lula. And now, this comes from, if you notice in a palm tree, before the branches, the leaves start spreading out, that first it grows very straight. And you'll see at the top of the palm trees, there's usually these kinds of lulavs, or these kind of straight branches at the top of the palm tree, that the youngest branches on the tree, and then later they grow out. Usually, a regular palm tree will usually have, on average, one or two of these during the summer. Uh, sometimes three of these kind of young branches that they just grew that haven't yet grown out. So these are the branches. You get two or three per tree that they cut from palm trees. So uh, we get them from date palms. Um, they cut them here in California. Um, here in the United States, a lot of them are supplied from here in California, from date farms, a lot of date farms in this state. Um, there's also date farms in the Middle East that um, they cut them from in Israel, uh, from Egypt, from other, country, in other countries. And so that's where, the, um, that's where the lulav comes from. Like the etrog, the lulav, when we lived in Europe, had to be imported. doesn't grow in northern Europe. Dates, uh, palm trees don't grow in Europe or in cold climates. They only grow in very warm climates. So they had to be imported. Luckily, like the etrog, they were, um, they, they're able to last. The etrog, one of the beauties of the etrog is that it can last for weeks or even a few months without going bad. Eventually it dries out. But so long as you keep it dry and protect it, it can last for a couple months. So that way they were able to export it from Italy or the Middle East to all over Europe. The lula branch is the same thing. So long as it's cared for, it can last for some time. They were able to cut them and export them all over Europe. That's why in, um, in Europe, our grandparents had a very high, hard time getting a lula of an etro because they were imported. They were extremely expensive, right? Today, importing is expensive. We import from China. Back then, importing anything was very expensive, anything that was imported. So it was very hard to get a lula of an etro. And in Europe... Most communities, each synagogue only had one lulav and etrog for the entire synagogue. 
and only very, very wealthy people were able to afford their own lulav and etrog. They were so expensive. They were so hard to get um, because the lulav and the etrog were both imported. Today, well, the etrog's imported from the, most of them come from Israel now, um, some from Italy and Morocco and Yemen. I don't know how much they're actually cutting in Yemen now, but they definitely cut in Morocco and in Italy. Um, they still have orchards. Um, and they go and cut there and they import here from all those countries. Tallulah is imported from California now, but um, it's again something you can't get all over the world. For the lulav to be kosher, it has to be at least four tfachim. A tefach is about three inches, so about 12 inches high. This one's quite a bit taller than 12 inches. Most lulavim come quite bigger than 12 inches. And the um, leaves have to still be together. They can have been separated out. And they also, the middle, the top leaf cannot be cut and cannot be split. Every leaf in a palm branch is actually, if you open it, it's a double leaf that's joined together. And so the middle leaf of the, of the lulav cannot be split. And therefore, when we shake the lulav, we have to be careful. Because if we shake the lulav too hard, then it opens up the, the lulav. And also it causes the middle, the leaves to split. So we careful, we sh- shake it gently. We don't shake it very hard. Because if you shake it, you ruin it. Sometimes I tell people to shake a lulav to help them do the mitzvah. And they start shaking it really hard, right? That's not what I meant, right? I meant shake it gently, right? Now I usually tell people, shake it gently, right? We don't want to ruin the lulav. So that is the lulav. The third thing that the Torah tells us to take is anaf eitz avot, which literally translates as the woven branch of a tree. The heady have a woven branch. So our oral tradition tells us that the woven branch is the hadas, or a myrtle branch, which you can see over here, and if you can see it from where you are. Now, what do you mean that it's woven? So just, or braided. A braided branch of a tree. What does it mean, braided? So when you braid, you need three strands to braid. So in the same way, the hadas is very unique. At each point along the stem where the leaves come out, there are three leaves coming out from the same point along the stem. It's the only plant that has that. And now not all myrtles have that. Some myrtle, some myrtle trees, depending on the particular type of myrtle, some myrtles don't have all three coming out from the same point of the stem. For the hadas to be used on Sukkot, it has to have three leaves coming out from the same point of the stem. Only again, only certain myrtles grow like that. Um, the myrtle has the hadas has to be at least three tfachim or nine inches tall, um, and has to have most of its leaves. If its leaves dry out or fall off, which they sometimes do over time, like all plants, like all flowers or branches, um, then they are not. It's not kosher anymore. We cannot use it. And so therefore we keep our lulav in water like you usually would keep, your, uh, you keep it in water or keep it in the fridge or keep it um, wrapped in a damp towel to ensure that the leaves don't dry out or fall off over the seven days of Sukkot. Um, the myrtle branch, thankfully, the myrtle tree can grow anywhere, just about. And so Jews, wherever Jews live, they plant in myrtle trees, hadas trees, in order for us to have hadasim for um, Sukkot. Today, most of our hadasim, they plant Jews, lived in New York, 
Um, in larger numbers, they lived anywhere else in the United States historically, and most of our myrtles come today from New York, are imported from New York. There are large myrtle um, orchards um, or um, fields in, um, in upstate New York. The fourth thing that we have on the lulav, the Torah tells us, is arve nachal, willow branches. So we have, these are willow branches. So we take, so I forgot to mention, hadasim, our tradition is that we have three hadasim, three myrtle branches. And the fourth thing that we do is we take willow branches. Now not all, there's a lot of types of willows. They grow everywhere. And there's many, many different species of willows. Not all willows work. And there are three conditions for a kosher arava, for a kosher willow that we can use on sukkah. Firstly, the leaves must be long and narrow, not rounded. Secondly, the leaves must have straight edges, must have um, smooth edges. It cannot be jaded. If it has jaded edges, it doesn't work. And finally, the stem has to have a reddish tinge to it. It cannot be entirely green. It has to have a reddish tinge to it. So we Jews, it's a particular species of arava that we can use that has these three things. We Jews, wherever we've lived, we've historically grown these aravot, wherever we've lived. And um, wherever Jews live, these aravos grow because we've grown and they tend to, willows grow on their own in the wild. They tend to grow themselves and we've planted them all over. Um, Today, our aravot that we have come from the same fields that have Hadassim, plant aravos that are owned by Jews in upstate New York, plant aravos too, and that is where most of our aravos come from. They're the same species that we have always used throughout our history. Now, the, um, our, 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 um, uh, the minute we take two aravos, three hadassim and two aravos, there is a custom in many communities to add in hadassim, do more than three hadassim. So to do, we do them in multiples of three, six, excuse me, or nine or twelve. The maximum number of hadassim you can have is thirty-six. So some people put thirty-six hadassim. It kind of looks like the lulav is surrounded in hadassim. Now, according to our oral tradition, we are to, do, to tie the hadassim and the aravot to the lulav. The etrog is not tied. But the hadasim and the aravot, the myrtle and the willow, are tied to the lulav branch. And we're supposed to tie them with something made of the lulav, or with a leaf from the lulav. So we basically tear a leaf off the side of our lulav, or take another lulav and tear a leaf off, and then we tie it to be able to, we use, we make a little kind of belt, or string, and we tie it around, you see these knots at the bottom, where we tie it, and that way we tie our hadasim to the, and our ravot to the lulav. Um, now, some people um, make a basket out of lulav leaves, and then they put the hadasim and the aravot in the they have sl- special with a special sleeve for the hadasim and the aravot, special sleeves, and they put a special sleeve for the lulav, and that way they have the lulav and hadasim all sitting nicely in a nice basket. There's a, so some put the hadasim on the right of the lulav and the aravot on the left. The, according to Kabbalah, we put 
one hadas and one arava on each side of the lulav, and we put the other, the third hadas in the back of the lulav. So that's how we tie them. We also have a custom to tie the lulav on top, and that holds the leaves together when we shake it, that it doesn't get too, it doesn't get too spread out, and that way it stays together. So we tie it on top as well, again using lulav leaves. Um, so we have our lulav and etrog. When do, what do we do with them? So the Torah tells us that we should take our lulav and etrog on the first day of Sukkot. So on the first day of Sukkot, we are required to take a lulav and etrog. In the temple, the Torah says, we should take it for the seven days of Sukkot. Outside the temple, just take it on the first day of Sukkot. When the temple was destroyed, our sages said that we should, to remember the temple, we should take the lulav every single day of Sukkot. So the first day of Sukkot is a biblical command, and the other six days of Sukkot is a rabbinic command to take the lulav every day of Sukkot. Now, when we take the lulav on the first day of Sukkot, when it's a biblical command, the Torah tells us, you shall take your own lulav. And so that teaches us that you cannot borrow a lulav from somebody else. You've got to have your own lulav, at least on the first day of Sukkot. You cannot borrow someone else's. Now, this was a problem. Not everybody is able to afford their own lulav and etrog. Particularly, today they're much cheaper. Most people can afford it. Back then, in um, Europe, there was only one per community. They were extremely expensive. They were imported from Italy, the lulav and the etrog. Very, very expensive. And um, very hard to to get. Usually every synagogue just had one. So what do you do? So we Jews came up with a great idea, which is we gift the lulav to each other. So we give it to you as a gift. Now it's yours. So I gift you my lulav. Now this was a problem somewhat because... Um, people were afraid, if I gift you my lulav, you might not give it back to me. It's very, very expensive. right? People were afraid that they wouldn't get it back. And so what they would do is, they would say, I'm gifting it to you, but on condition that you gift it back to me. It's a gift, but you have to then gift it back to me as well. And that way, at least when you shake it, it is your mitzvah. Now, both, the shaking the, both taking the lulav, and sitting in a sukkah are two of a handful of mitzvot in the Torah that are called a mitzvat aseh shazman grama, a positive commandment with a set time. And not all, but some positive commandments that are limited to certain times um, are only for men. In other words, only Jewish men were required to shake the lulav and the etrog, as well as sit in the sukkah. But not women. It's a handful of mitzvot. Some of the other mitzvot that fall into that category include reading the Shema every day and, and hearing the shofar on Rosh Hashanah. However, historically, women can do the mitzvah and get credit for doing the mitzvah. And historically, although the commandment is only an re- absolute requirement for men, um, historically, Jewish women have fulfilled all these mitzvahs as well. 
And so today it has been a custom for thousands of years that men and women shake the lulav, sit in the sukkah, hear the shofar, read the shema. The only mitzvot that women are exempt from that historically they did not do and still don't do today and why is the subject of its own class are wearing the tefillin and wearing the tzitzit. Well, those are the only two. Other than that, all the other commandments, all the other commandments that were only originally given to men, historically Jewish women have done as well. And um, they make and make because they're, they can still make, it's still a mitzvah for them, therefore they can still make a blessing on it. They make a blessing, thank you God, for giving us this mitzvah. And they definitely get credit for doing it and definitely should do the lulav and etrog and sit in and eat in a sukkah on sukkot. So the only two mitzvahs that women are not required to do and historically have not done are tefillin and tzitzit, which would include the talent. Um, historically, women have not done it. Can they do it? Is it the subject of its own discussion? And we could talk about it maybe another time. Yes, I'm sorry. Yes, Carol. Reading from the Torah is not a mitzvah. Um, reading from the Torah is um, part of the synagogue service. And women's involvement in the synagogue service is, is a subject of another discussion. We, I think we did a class on women in the synagogue at one point. Uh, but after class, if you want, we'll talk, we can talk about it briefly. Yes, Bill? How do you take care of the lulav? So the lulav itself it will, will be fine as long as you don't shake it too hard. Your problem is going to be the hadasim and the aravot, the myrtle and the willow. They, their leaves are going to start drying out over time. So you have to either keep them very cold, like by putting them in a refrigerator, or keep them very moist. By either putting them, you can put them in a vase with water, or you can um, wrap them in a moist towel, not a wet towel, because that will ruin them also, but a damp towel um, is another way to do it, um, to keep them moist. Uh, but you have to keep them either moist or cold, otherwise they will dry out like flowers. Can you wet the baskets? Sorry? Can you wet the baskets? You should be able to wet the baskets. It shouldn't be a problem. Make them wet? Make mm -hmm. the basket wet? Yeah. You should be careful not to wet the etro. If the etro gets wet, it turns brown. So make sure it's dry before you put them together. Yeah, because the etrog will get one. So the mitzvah is to hold all four together, to hold the lulav, which is already connected with the hadasim and the aravo, together with the etrog. So we pick them up, and we make a blessing on them together. We first make a blessing on the lulav, and then we pick up the etrog, because once we've already picked them up, we did the mitzvah. The mitzvah is to hold them. And so we pick up the lulav, we make a blessing. Thank you, God, for giving us the commandment to shake the lulav, and then we pick up the etrog and we hold them together. Now, holding them already is the mitzvah. When we hold them, we should hold them in our hands. If we hold them in our hands, we should make sure there's nothing between our skin and the 
lulav and etrog. And therefore it's important to remember to take off anything that might be on our skin. For example, rings. We should remove our rings before shaking, before holding the lulav and etrog. People aren't aware or forget that. Uh, but it's important to make sure to take it off so that we could act, we're actually holding the lulav with nothing between the lulav and etrog and our hands. Um, the custom is to not only hold the lulav, the Torah says to hold it, but the custom is to also shake it. And according to Kabbalah, we shake it in six directions. There's various customs for the order of the six directions, but we shake it right, left, forward, back, and up and down. We shake it in all the directions. Um, and that there's a custom to shake it three times in each direction, again, shaking it gently each time. Now, in addition to, now we shake the lulav each day of Sukkot, except for on Shabbos. Our sages said, because on Shabbos it's forbidden to carry outside, we're afraid people might carry their lulav to shul, and therefore they said, similar to blowing the shofar, we don't blow the shofar on Shabbos, we don't shake the lulav on Shabbos either. In addition to holding the lulav every day and making a blessing, we also, our sages said, that every day of Sukkot, we should recite the Hallel. The Hallel is a collection of chapters from Psalms praising God. And we recite it on every special holiday, every holiday, including every day of Sukkot. When we recite the Hallel, we hold our lulav and our etrog. And then there are four times throughout the Hallel when we shake the lulav and the etrog. In addition, after, during our services, we march, or we take the lulav and the etrog, and we march with the lulav and etrog around the bima. In the temple, in Jerusalem, when the temple stood, they would march around the altar in the temple courtyard with their lulav and etrog, and they would recite um, the um, poems calling for God to save us, called Hoshina, please save us. And they would recite a poem. We recite the same words. Anna Hashem Hoshiana, please God save us. Anna Hashem Hatzlichana, please God give us success. As they would march around the altar, we do the same thing, marching around the bima in the synagogue. The bima is the table that we read the Torah from. Um, we march around the bima every single day except for Shabbat. And then on the last day of Sukkot, on the seventh day of Sukkot, we march around seven times. We have special prayers. It's its own special day. We'll talk about it next week called Hoshana Rabbah. And um, we march around during our prayers seven times. During, every morning during the prayers. On Tuesday, we, our prayers are at 10 a.m. And Wednesday as well. Friday will be at 7 a.m. Thursday, Friday will be 7 no, traditionally just amended because it's like most synagogue things that are led by men. Yes. So uh, we'll have a brief discussion afterwards when we're done. I'm happy to have a brief discussion of how brought it up about women in the synagogue. We can do that very briefly. So why do we do it? Why do we shake the lulav and etrog? The Torah tells us why we sit in the Sukkot Sukkot to remember how God placed us in, protected us as we went through the desert. Um, for 40 years, but it doesn't tell us why we shake the little of an etro. So a number of reasons were given. The Midrash tells us that the lulav and etro and hadassim and aravot 
each represent different types of juice. It tells us that the etrog has a taste and a smell and represents, the taste represents Jews that study Torah, the smell represents Jews that follow, are meticulous about the commandments, and so the etrog represents a Jew who studies Torah and is meticulous about the commandments. The lulav comes from a date palm. Dates have a great taste, but not much of a smell. And so it represents people who study Torah, the taste, but don't follow the commandments, are not meticulous about the commandments. The hadas, the myrtle, has a wonderful smell, but is not edible, and therefore represents those that fulfill the commandments, but don't get to study the Torah. And the arava, the willow, has no taste and no smell, and represents people who neither study nor follow the commandments. And so on Sukkot, we take all four of them, representing all types of Jews, and bring them together, showing that we are all one. And we cannot be one without the other, even those who are missing something, they are all part of our people, and we're in, and we, our people include everyone. Another reason given, Maimonides says, that just like the sukkah reminds us how God led us through the desert and protected us in uh, protected us through the desert, so we sit in the sukkah kind of in an open hut um, where we're subject to the elements. In the same way, the lulav and etrog are plants, plants that were native to Israel, and remind us how we went through the desert with no vegetation. We had no food, no vegetation, and we still followed God. God protected us through the desert, and that's why we shake the lulav and etrog. They're all vegetation that is native to Israel, and also things that will last, and all things last for seven days, the things that will last through Sukkot. Another explanation given is that Sukkot is the time when we pray for rain. We ask God for rain. Farmers, when Jews were agrarian and living on farms, we needed rain. Today, even we don't live on farms, the farmers need rain for us to have food. We still need rain. And so Sukkot was the time to pray for rain, and so therefore all these things are all things that need a lot of water to grow, all of these plants, and so therefore we are um, symbolizing our need for rain. The Medrash gives us a different explanation. It says that they represent a person. The Lulav represents the spine. The Lulav is the spine. The Hadassim, the leaves of the Hadassim are similar to one's eyes. They represent one's eyes. The arava, the willow, represents a mouth. And the etrog represents the heart. And so it represents different parts of a person, reminding us that we must use every part of ourselves to in service of God. The number of different sins give us a reason, many different reasons are given for this mitzvah. It's generally assumed that this mitzvah does have a reason. Some mitzvahs don't have reasons at all, but this mitzvah does have a reason, though there are many different reasons given. Uh, but definitely a very, very powerful mitzvah and a great mitzvah. And so um, I encourage you all to um, over Sukkot to fulfill these mitzvot, both the mitzvah of eating in the sukkah and shaking the lulav as much as possible. Um,